So we're continuing our series on Entrusted with the Gospel, which is Paul's letter, letters to 1st and 2nd Timothy and to Titus. And our scripture passages will be, we'll start with Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, and then the other passage will be in 1st Timothy. And as I'm, as I'm thinking about it, let me, let me invite you to turn as well to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Can I add that to you? Is a get little call an audible here. Let's read. If it's not a burden to read more scripture, let's let's do so, shall we? So uh, let's start with the first. Uh, let's start with First Corinthians chapter five, and then we'll go to Ephesians chapter six, and then to our passage before us this morning. First Corinthians chapter five. Beginning in verse 1, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, who we could say, if we were to summarize the, the Christian church in Corinth, we would say they had, some, they had some issues. And so here is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord your boasting is not good do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world but now i am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one for what have i to do with judging outsiders is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge god judges those outside purge the evil person from among you and now ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse 10 finally be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers 
over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And now 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 uh, through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, thank you. Well, this morning we are looking at just three short verses as we're continuing in 1 Timothy. And uh, let me remind you what uh, we have looked at thus far. This is, of course, the letter by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who is his apostolic delegate, his, we could say, kind of like a protege. It's one who he has given a great deal of authority to. He's known Timothy from when he was much younger. Timothy had heard the gospel from his Christian mother and his Christian grandmother. And when uh, Paul met Timothy on his missionary journeys, he, he saw a great deal of um, promise in this young man and wanted this young man to go with him. And so he has sent out Timothy to this church in Ephesus. The passage that we just read in Ephesians is also addressed to the same church. Timothy is assigned to go to this church in Ephesus, and he's given him some instructions on how to deal with some false teachers that had arisen in that church. Just as Paul was concerned about, Acts chapter 20, he said, I, I knew that there was going to be some, some false teachers who were going to rise up and lead the sheep astray. And so Paul gives his charge to Timothy, and he started that in verse 3, and he's now returning to that same topic in these verses, verses 18, 19, and 20. And so today I want to look at these three passages, and what we're going to do is look at each of those three verses, and each of those three verses is going to address uh, one of three main topics uh, or lessons that we can learn from this passage today. And the first one deals with this. There's one, one lesson for each scripture verse. The first one is the reality of spiritual warfare. The reality of spiritual warfare. 
Notice verse 18. This charge, and again, this is the charge is in reference to what he had said earlier, how he began in verses 3 through 11. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. And then once again, reiterating what he said to him about his, in the greeting in verse 2, my true child in the faith. He says, I am, what, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The good warfare. He's using the metaphor of warfare and being a soldier to describe Timothy's job in his ministry, which he has been entrusted to there in Ephesus. Or to put it quite simply, gospel ministry is spiritual war. It's spiritual warfare. Later on, even the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says uh, these words, and I put them on the slide for you. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Here he's using the noun form of the verb here of warfare. And then verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And again, he's using this imagery, this metaphor to describe what Timothy is to engage himself in. He needs to think of his gospel ministry there as spiritual warfare. And I would add, not only gospel ministry, indeed, all of the Christian life. The Christian life itself is a spiritual war. As we read in Ephesians chapter 6, a couple of features about this war, whether it's, and this is not limited to just apostolic protégés, it's not limited to, to pastors or elders, certainly true for them, it's for everyone. When Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, he was addressing everyone about putting on the whole armor of God because of the nature of the spiritual warfare. So a couple of things. What's our main enemy? Who is our main en enemy? Well, Satan or the devil or that ancient serpent. Satan is our great enemy. And then that's our enemy. And then I want to think about two different battlefronts that this warfare takes place in. Kind of think of, you know, in World War II, they, they often, or World War II, World War I, maybe both. Uh, there was the Eastern Front and the Western Front. There were two battlefronts, or uh, that was World War I. World War II, you had the theaters of battle. There was the European theater, and then you had the Pacific theater. So kind of think of that. It's all one gigantic war, but it's taking place on kind of two fronts. And here are those fronts as it relates to the Christian warfare, the, the warfare of spiritual warfare of the Christian life. The first one is the inward battlefront. And this is related to your personal sanctification. The personal sanctification. Or sometimes this might be uh, used uh, the term the battle against the flesh or our sinful human nature that even remains even in those who are justified in Christ we have 
the sinful new human nature that remains in us that needs to be put to death. And Satan, our enemy, he will use our flesh against our new nature, our new man in Christ. This is frequently a theme in the New Testament. First Peter chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, he says, which wage war against your soul. The remnants of our old sinful nature in Adam do remain until we are perfected in glory when Christ returns. Those passions wage war against your soul. Have you ever felt like your soul was at war? Have you ever felt in your soul a battle against the sinful nature? Well, if you have, you can rejoice. Because if the battle is happening, you know that the Lord is working. And so Christians are called, uh, have a call to arms basically to wage war required in our sanctification. And it's serious business. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There is no let go and let God. There's no I can fight this alone. But with the help of the spirit of God, we could put to death those things in us. And it's a battle. It's a fight. So for all of us, every I think every Christian should should every day be asking, what do I need to do with the help of the indwelling spirit of the living God to fight and to destroy the sin that is waging war against my soul? So that's the the inward battlefront might be helpful for us to be reminded that we are in a, a war on an inward battlefront, but we're also facing an outward battlefront. And this, as the first one was referred to, is kind of the term to think of that as the flesh. This one you could think of as the world. And not the globe or not the population of the world per se, but this system kind of as we are in the fallen world that we are in. The term the New Testament uses for that is, is just the world. How would you describe these forces of evil that are working in the world that, that we as Christians are kind of fighting against? They call it the world. It's just the world. And so we have an, a battlefront against the world as well. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he speaks of this battle this way. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, meaning he's talking about in term on the human plane. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Amen. We are called to a warfare against the world. Now, it's uh, how we conduct that warfare, we'll get to here in a moment, but it's helpful to remember that we have a battle against 
ideologies. There's a battle against worldviews. Now, we sometimes think of that just merely in the human plane. It, it really isn't. The Apostle Paul here is talking about thoughts, lofty opinions, arguments. The Christians are to engage against these kind of ideologies in the world that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And this is not a, a recreational activity. The Apostle Paul connects this with warfare. Waging war. And that's the front that Paul in particular is exhorting Timothy in in this passage in verse 18. That you may wage the good warfare, Timothy. The Christian life entails warfare. And again, notice, as we read in Ephesians, we are to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. We are to put on the full armor of God. And I love how he says this in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Again, we're not thinking of the human persons as like enemies that we need to destroy. But our battle against is, is against the rulers, against cosmic authorities, or authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're battling. This is one thing I often forget when I, when I see maybe atheists or people who are uh, antagonistic toward Christianity and social media or wherever. And uh, I have to press down the impulse to look at them as the enemy. When, when in reality, it's that ideology is the enemy. That I, I hope to rescue that person from that destructive ideology. That's harming them. May, may we all do that. We recognize that. We're fighting. We're not fighting against that flesh and blood person. We're fighting against what it is that, that is entrapped their mind. Their, their suppressing of the truth. We want to counter all of those arguments. And we do this through the word of God. We, can, we, cannot, we cannot do this alone. Of course, the Lord has to do that by his spirit. Has to cause them to be... To be uh, transformed in their mind. They have to be born again by the Spirit of God in order for them to understand those things. But we have to present the content side. We have to counter their arguments. Are you with me? So that's our battlefront in the world. And what do we fight with? The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. The shoes for our feet. The readiness that comes from the gospel. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, to be clear, when I'm talking about Christians engaging in warfare, whether it's the inward front or the outward front, not everything needs to be a war and a battle at every single moment. This is contrary to, to some who always seem to be fighting. Do you know who I'm kind of thinking about? You maybe have some in your mind that are Christians that are so 
engaged in the fight that for them everything is a war. So much so that they end up fighting even their, their own brothers and sisters in Christ. I often find it fascinating when you hear about people who go into the military and become soldiers, and then as they're in basic training, uh, almost inevitably fights break out between you know people of the same company fighting with each other. Somebody says something, they get into a disagreement. Um, but I always find it's interesting is that when they get deployed and they now have a different enemy, all of those squabbles go away. When they're really engaged with the real enemy, all of the, the fighting that would happen, the fisticuffs that would break out in basic training, fall to the wayside, and all of a sudden, you're brothers in arms. You're united with them as brothers because your life depends on it. I think so, too, is the case in the Christian life. And even when you're not on the front lines, you can be in camaraderie and joy and celebration or um, even as David said with Samuel you could be worshiping with your other soldiers and airmen and seamen and marines you could be worshiping when you're not on the front lines but in but so too in the Christian life be careful that in our fight against the world and these worldly ide uh, ideologies that we don't make our friends our enemies We must be dis really discerning on when we're engaged with the enemy and when we've gone over into friendly fire and shooting genuine believers. Nevertheless, that, that little aside there, nevertheless, it's helpful for us to remember the Christian life entails its warfare. And believers would do, ourselves, do, uh, do well to not lull, lull ourselves into thinking that we're in a constant state of peacetime. I love this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that kind of encompasses the enemy and the two fronts that we are engaged in. Where it says, O oh Lord God, grant your people grace to withstand the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and with pure hearts and minds to follow you, the only God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So that's the first one, spiritual warfare. The next lesson comes verse 19, where Paul says, this charge I have entrusted to you, that by um, the, the prophecies previously made about, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And then he says to Timothy, holding faith and a good conscience. Okay, so now uh, these are two valuable things that Timothy himself possesses that he must carefully guard in his warfare and in his battle. And these, uh, this little pair of terms, faith and conscience, or faith in a good conscience, or faith in a clear conscience, occur frequently. As a matter of fact, we already saw it in verse 5, where he says that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Remember, that's the, the goal of what he is attempting to send Timothy to go and correct. Likewise, in chapter 3, we'll see this again, that one of the, the deacon candidates, he has to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So what's the relationship here between good warfare and holding faith in a good conscience? Well, it either, this could be 
uh, Paul talking about the means by which Timothy is to engage in these things. Uh, holding on to, by holding on to faith and good conscience, it will help him in his warfare. Or it could be um, the promise of, because he has faith and a good conscience, that he can be victorious in the struggle. So in other words, it could be because you hold on to faith and a good conscience. Either way, Timothy is exhorted to these, these things here. What is faith? Here it doesn't have the, the definite article, the, later at the sentence it does. So I think, I think this is referring to the actual Christian faith, the doctrines of the Christian faith, the gospel. And a good conscience would be like your, your personal belief in it and your convictions about it, but then how you conduct yourselves in response to it. I think he's kind of giving a whole orbed picture here. So the beginning of verse 19, he says, faith and a good conscience, you need to hold on to those, Timothy. And then he says this, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Shipwrecking faith is what I want you, us to notice here in verse 19. How do you shipwreck your faith? The Apostle Paul says, by rejecting this, that verb for reject is a, a very strong and forceful one. If you could kind of think of somebody like pushing their way through a crowd and then shoving somebody and knocking somebody to the ground, that's the action kind of depicted in this verb. Rejecting it. It's conscious, it's deliberate, even violent. It's an active spurning, one commentator says. What is it that they're rejecting? These, these people are rejecting in order to shipwreck their faith. It says this. Well, the this is singular, but he just talked about faith and, and good conscience. Which is it? Maybe it's both. Some commentators say it's both. It's kind of the whole thing. It's like you've rejected the, your beliefs about the Christian life and then you've rejected in your conscience like how to follow it. Or some would say, you know, I think he's only ref referencing his conscience. But the idea here is somebody who has rejected personal faith, rejected the Christian doctrine, and then as a result has brought their faith and maybe even the Christian faith in, in reproach. There's a contemporary term that is often used, and it's been really popular in the last couple of years, to describe the very thing that Paul is talking about here, or those who are deconstructing their faith. Have you heard this? Those who, who are deconstructing their faith. How do you, I mean, you deconstructing would be you're tearing it down and, so they're, they're using more of like a, build, a building terminology. You're, you have to tear it all down so that they could rebuild something else in its place. So maybe they grew up in the church. And they, at some point, start to question. They, they get a book from a certain teacher or hear some different teachings out there that start to challenge the Christian faith. And they start to question it themselves, all of what they were taught in their upbringing, all of the creeds and catechisms, and they, they begin to kind of pick at it and pulling it apart so that you end up tearing the whole thing down and then they want to reconstruct something in its place. They're using a, a, a construction metaphor. The Apostle Paul is using a shipwreck 
metaphor. You shipwreck your faith. And how do they do this? By faith in a good conscience. So, so how does this happen? How does a professed, can a professed believer lose their salvation? I know we've, we've had this question. I've been asked this question many times, and we've, we've talked about this before. But it might be helpful here to give you a, a couple of ways I think that they're helpful to think about this topic of shipwrecked faith. And this, this is how I would help us to, to kind of classify two different categories. I want you to think of two different categories. And, and think of the terms astray and apostasy. Astray and apostasy. Some who has gone astray, or you could even use the term backsliding. Um, and a note, I know that in the King James they, the term that they use for back, they use backsliding and, and apostasy is kind of the same thing. I'm, I'm talking about two different phases here, okay? So think of going astray or backsliding and then think of apostasy or think of the difference between a true believer and a temporary believer. Now let me explain. So going astray or backsliding would be moving away from faith or faithfulness to Christ from which one can recover. It's, it's a temporary one through repentance, through diligence, making your calling and election sure. You know, it's a moving away, but then coming back. Apostasy is a, a falling away from a professed faith in Christ. It's moving from falling away to rejection. And maybe not a re necessarily rejection of the entire Christian faith altogether. It might just be a rejection of essential Christian doctrines. It might be the rejection of hell. Or it might be the rejection of um, Christ's substitutionary atoning work. Those are the ones I've, I'm the most familiar with. Those seem like the ones that people here gravitate to they're questioned about they cause them to rethink those things and question the christian faith and then they would seek to just kind of reject those things thinking that they're just rejecting those and want to hold on to a jesus of some way but ultimately they're rejecting essential christian doctrines this is this is apostasy or the difference between a true believer who may have up or downs in the christian walk but ultimately, they remain in the faith because Christ keeps them in the faith. The difference between that and temporary believers who also have ups and downs and highs and lows, but ultimately do not remain in the faith be because they have rejected it. So you'll hear terms in the scriptures of fall or falling away or turning away or rebellion or drifting away. All of those terms can describe both in the initial phases. And both in the initial phases look the same. The difference is the ones who come back and the ones who don't. The London Baptist Confession, I think, is very helpful here on helping us to sort out the difference between true believers and temporary believers. And I, temporary believers, and I, again, I want to explain what I mean here. And this is what the confession says. True believers, and if this is you, this is to be an encouragement to you. 
True believers may, in various ways, have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, or temporarily lost. They're just describing the reality. It's not describing the salvation itself. They're talking about the assurance of it, our subjective experience of it. He says, the, the confession is saying, this is, this is a reality. True believers will go through periods where their assurance of that might be shaken or decreased or temporarily lost. It goes on to say, this may happen because they neglect to preserve it. Or they fall into some specific sin that wounds their conscience and grieves their spirit. It may happen through some unexpected or forceful temptation or when God withdraws the light of his face and allows even those who fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. And by the way, is that a troubling thought a little bit for some of us? For some believers who who have trusted in Jesus Christ to know that there are times when the Lord removes his countenance from us, to grow us, to challenge us. I believe that's an accurate representation of what the scriptures describe as a Christian life. But nevertheless, yet... So you, Christian life goes through ups and downs, highs and lows in your walk. Your, your sense of your, the assurance of your salvation can, can increase and it can kind of wane. Yet they are never completely lacking the seed of God, the life of faith, love of Christ and the brethren, sincerity of heart or conscience concerning their duty. Out of these graces, through the work of the Spirit, this assurance may at proper time be revived. In the meantime, they are kept from utter despair through them. I think what they're saying here is that there's the graces that God gives us, his, his word, his spirit within us, the love that we get communicated to us from the gospel, the fellowship that we have with believers, all of those things can strengthen us through those dark times where we feel our assurance is, is waning. But nevertheless, if you do indeed have true faith, you will be utterly kept. You will pre be preserved by the power of God. So true believers sometimes progress in the Christian life, but sometimes go backward. The Christian life is not one steady, un, unobstructed, unpeated, uh, straight line of progress. It's this. Or as it says in a different chapter, the chapter on saving faith, it'll say this. This true faith, saving faith, may exist in varying degrees so that it may be either weak or strong. You ever had a moments of your Christian life where you felt like your faith was strong. Yeah. I mean, have you ever have gone through moments of your Christian life where you felt your faith was weak or waning? This is a reality. Yet even in its weakest form, I love this, it is different in kind or nature like all other saving graces from the faith and common grace of, there it is, temporary believers. Therefore, faith may often be attacked and weakened, but it gains the victory. It matures in many to the point that they attain the full assurance through Christ, who is both the founder and perfecter 
of our faith. But notice that it said temporary believers. Temporary believers. In another chapter, it says temporary believers and other unregenerate people may deceive themselves in the vain hopes, false hopes, and fleshly presumptions that they have God's favor and salvation, but their hope will perish. I love that the confession is acknowledging here is that there are those who do, in fact, have true and saving faith, and there is such a thing as temporary believers. And what they mean is, is not that they were justified, not that they were regenerate, because it says temporary believers and other unregenerate people. It is saying those who make a profession of faith. And it seems like it's real. And then over time, they fall from the faith into rejecting it altogether. Isn't that just seem like a head scratching thing? Some of us would think uh, some would think, well, they were genuinely saved, but then they lost it. But I think a better way to think of it is that they had temporary faith. They did not have true saving faith. The difference being is that true believers can be brought back through repentance and use of the means that God's, God gives. I think Jesus illustrates this well, this sermon on the, 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 excuse me, the parable of the sower, when he talks about the, the seed of the sower being tossed out and some fell on the path, some fell in rocky ground, some fell among the thorns, and yet some fell among good soil. And when his disciples came to him later, said, hey, can you kind of explain this to us? And he says, the seed is the, the word or the message of the kingdom. It's the word of God. And it's sown out. And the, the seed that lands on the path is like those who don't really understand it. And he says, the evil one comes and snatches it away. Like the birds do. And he goes, there's some that was sown on the rocky ground. It's the ones who hear the word and receives it with joy, but yet it does not have root. It, it looks like it's a plant that will grow, but it has no root. When tribulation or persecution comes, it's like the, the heat of the sun beating down on it, and it fades away. As for the seed that lands among thorns, Jesus says that's like the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And then lastly, he says, but it's the good soil, the one who hears the word, who understands it, indeed bears fruit. And it yields, in one case, hundredfold, 60, or even 30. Hopefully that's helpful for us to understand this phenomenon that is happening, the deconstructing or shipwrecking of faith. And this is also a part of our warfare. Because those who are deconstructing the faith don't tend to keep it to themselves. This newfound faith that they have created after they've torn down the edifice of the Christian doctrine and have replaced it with a, a doctrine of their own, they like to bring other people along. And so we need to be aware that those who are deconstructing their faith, they're a part of that world, that's that outward battlefront that we're waging against. So that's shipwrecked faith. And then lastly, here's the third last lesson for us. And that is church discipline, verse 20. Church discipline. 
And to get the context here, he says, By rejecting this, the end of verse 19, some have made shipwreck of their faith, rejecting faith in a good conscience or rejecting just the good conscience, have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Okay? Two individuals heard the gospel call, made profession of faith in Christ, publicly had repented of their sins, were publicly baptized, perhaps, at the church in Ephesus. And Hymenaeus, who, who appears in 2 Timothy as well, along with another guy named Philetus. Uh, and if you want to, you could turn here, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He gives another description about this Hymenaeus guy. Where Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If you and anybody grew up in Awana, that's the Awana theme verse, right? But then he goes on next and he says, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Look at the description. If you were to put this description of Hymenaeus, claims to teach the word of God, but doesn't rightly handle it. We saw a couple of weeks ago. Doesn't know what he's talking about. 1 Timothy 1, 7. He's an irreverent babbler or vain discussion, it says in 1 Timothy 1, 6. His talk is like gangrene. It spreads. Infests others. The specific doctrine he mentions is this. He says that the resurrection has already happened and he's upsetting the faith of believers, leading them to ungodliness. This is why, this is why the spiritual warfare and the recognition uh, of shipwreck faith, these go together. The other guy is uh, Alexander, um, and there's not much mentioned about him. Paul mentions another Alexander, a metal worker who had done him much harm. We're not sure if it's the same, the same guy. But, but just notice this about the mentioning of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Sometimes, sometimes it's appropriate to call people out by name. Sometimes I call out false teachers by name, and I've heard people say, you know, that's pretty rude. And I'm like, well, is it rude for Paul to do that? Like Hymenaeus and, you know, Philetus? Those guys, you know, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they, they have shipwrecked their faith. And remember, this letter is to be read by all. This is not rude. Sometimes it's necessary. I would not be doing my job as a shepherd over the flock to warn the sheep by name. If I would have said, hey, just watch out for wolves, and you would be like, great, what does a wolf look like? And I not tell you? You know, they got furry little ears and sharp teeth, and, you know, like, I have to say that. So that's one thing to notice. It's not appropriate to, to say that person is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sometimes you have to do it by name. But then notice what the Apostle Paul says to do to these guys. Among whom are Hymenaeus Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What is going on here? This is leading us to this, the, the, the lesson about church discipline. Here you had somebody who's worked his way into the church. Who, by the way, is a Hymenaeus in particular is a bad dude. There's no way he should have gained position of power in a church 
at all. He should be nowhere near a place of spiritual influence. But do you just kind of let that person be in there and go, oh, I disagree with you? Or do you go that at some point you say, you're out. You're out. You have to, Timothy, these guys have to go. But they seem very influential and have a great deal of following. Doesn't matter. These guys have to go. For the safety of the congregation, they have to go. And sometimes, and, uh, and it's, it, it's, I know, very difficult to, to think about this language that he used. I have handed over to Satan. What is going on there? Let's go back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 5, where that issue, the Apostle Paul, it's another passage where the Apostle Paul talks about handing somebody over to Satan. The issue was there was some things going on in the church of a sexual sin nature. And Paul heard about it and wrote, this is horrible. He says it's so bad. The pagans don't even do that kind of stuff. And you guys were rejoicing in it. Like perhaps they were saying in our freedom that we have in, the, in Christ and the gospel, we're unable to do these things. Paul says, absolutely not. And as a matter of fact, you should mourn. He says, let him who has done this be removed from you. And he goes on to say, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow. Now, what does that mean? Is there, like, does Satan have, a, you know, a headquarters somewhere? You take the person and you say, I'm sorry, we're transferring you over here. What is this reference to handing over to Satan? I think that the, the idea here is outside of the church. The person just can't be a part of the church anymore. The boundaries are the recognition by the church of that person saying, you are not in the church. You are outside of the church. That is handing somebody over to Satan. And let me just say, and that's a teaching. Multiple passages of scripture talk about. Jesus himself talked about this. You know, brother sins against you. You go to him, show him his fault. Matthew 18. If he doesn't listen to you, take two or three witnesses. If he doesn't listen to you, bring it to the entire church. And it's the entire church that does it. It's not the leaders of the church that does it. It's not the pastor who does it. Doesn't have that authority. It's everyone in the church. And in order for everyone to decide on who gets kicked out of the church, you have to know who everybody is in the church. And so you have to kick that person out. The church does that. And Jesus says, and you're to treat them like a tax collector. Jesus says, There's, you should treat people like tax collectors. He says, yes. Those need to be rejected out of the church. Now, some may say, well, that's not fair. You can't decide. The other believers can't decide who are Christians or not. Yes, you can. The Apostle Paul goes on. I wrote to you not to associate sexually immoral people. The world's filled with sexually immoral people. I'm not talking about the world. 
He goes, I'm talking about the ones in the church. Notice verse 11. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. You're going to have somebody who calls himself a Christian and then sleeps around. Somebody who calls himself a Christian and says, the Lord's leading me to a new wife. Somebody who calls himself a Christian and is extravagantly greedy and selfish. Somebody who calls himself a Christian and engages in all sorts of other forms of pagan kind of worship and Enneagram thing and personality type stuff. He engages in all of these things and you're sitting here going, you can't do that. You can't do that. And you would say, who are you to tell me? The Apostle Paul says. If anybody's guilty of Sexual immorality, greed, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even eat with such one. And then he says, well, you're just being judgmental. He goes, no, I'm not. I'm not judging outsiders. For what do I have, what, what have I to do judging with outsiders outside of the church? Satan's realm, those who are, go to Satan. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. But to the Corinthians, he says, and he gives them a quote from Deuteronomy, purge the evil person from among you, which in the context was the death penalty. Those who had committed evil in Deuteronomy were to be given the death penalty there. The Apostle Paul is taking a scripture passage that is referring to the death penalty to Israelites who just rejected the Israelite faith. And he says, you need, to, you need to put them to death. Now, the Apostle Paul isn't saying to put them to death here. It's under the new covenant. But the principle applies. And he says, you hand them over to Satan. You say, you say, you are not a part. We do not recognize you as a believer. I know that's hard, isn't it? That seems like a very hard teaching. But that is a teaching uniformly in the New Testament of what we are called to do. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Now, do we do so in a mean-spirited way? Well, let me, let me say this. What are some of the reasons why? I would say, going along with faith and a good conscience, it is both doctrinally and morally. Doctrinally, if somebody is promoting heresy, you confront them on it, you challenge them on it, you correct them, and if they refuse and they refuse and they refuse, they do that shove of rejecting this, then you would say, there comes a point in time, you have to go out. And then morally, you you confront them for a sin that they have done wrong. A grievous sin, violating the, the, the law of God, and you confront them on it, and you bring them back to restoration, and they say, no, forget it. I'm going to do my own thing. The Lord's calling me. I, I just feel, I just love this new woman so much. No, no. The church gets to say, you're not allowed to do that. So those are the reasons. But what's the goal? Is the goal to kick people out? The goal is to make it a really small little circle? No, the goal is restorative, right? Look at the end. Back to 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 5. You deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Or what Paul says in 1 Timothy, verse 20. Whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's hope for Hymenaeus and for Alexander. Quit your blasphemy. Being handed over to Satan, be removed from the blessings of the church, and then realize I need I need the people of God. I was in error. I was in wrong. To which then you go, good. 
come back? How is it to be administered? With kindness, with forbearance, with discipline, with the goal of restoration. The goal isn't merely punishment. The goal is correction and the hope of restoring them to an original profession. Now, I have heard that churches that do this and have done it terribly. And they've done it wrong for numerous reasons. Some because it was a petty grievance between somebody in eldership or something like that, or the leader, it was a personal grievance. And which is why Jesus said, you don't actually, the, author, the leaders don't have the authority to do this. The whole church has to do it. I've seen it done very bad. But I think the, uh, an opposite error that's also dangerous is to have not do it at all. So church discipline. And now why? What's the point of all of this? What's the point of these three, these three lessons? Spiritual warfare. Being aware of those who have shipwrecked faith and church discipline. I think the point of all of these is that God wants to guard the purity of his people. The church is his bride. And he's protecting her. And he's given us the means to do so. Amen? Friends, let's come to the Lord's table now. We're grateful that we have a God who does indeed protect us and is looking after us. And so we're grateful that we could come to the table because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And again, this table is for all of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. We do guard this table from those who do not believe in Jesus. If you do not believe in Jesus, have not professed faith in him, then remain at your seat. But for those who call Jesus our Lord, who know that he is our Savior, by grace alone we have been saved, then we come to this table to commune with him, to have fellowship with him by the Spirit of God. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this meal that you give us in the name of your Son, Jesus, that it representing the broken body that he endured on the cross, the blood that was shed there to take our punishment and to grant us the forgiveness of our sins. And so... For those of us who profess faith in you, we come to your table with joy and gratitude for this wonderful gift. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen.